Father, would you cause us to feel the absolute and infinite character of your holiness? And Lord, would you make us despair of ever attaining a righteousness that would come from our law-keeping? And Lord, we pray that you would do these things that we might see the beauty of the righteousness of Christ, which by faith you make to be ours. And Lord, we pray that the, the newness and the freshness of the good news that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that you will make those who trust in Christ to be clothed with his own righteousness. We pray that you would cause this to thrill our hearts and to make us eager to communicate this good news to others. And Lord, we pray that it would be something that pervasively influences the way that we think about what's wrong with the world, what's going on in the world, and what we hope to come about in the world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. We pray that you'd make us gospel people and that you would transform us by this word of faith that Paul proclaims. Lord, we pray that you'd do all this and more than I can imagine or ask for. For the glory of the Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, amen. <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon told a parable that involved the gates of heaven and a certain flower being required by anyone who would enter into those gates. And I'm going to adapt his parable just slightly and invite you to imagine a time when, when you're required to, to, to grow your own flower somehow. And, and, and that's going to that's going to call up thoughts of where am I going to get healthy, fertile soil? And where am I going to get the seed that's going to produce this gloriously beautiful flower, this perfect flower that is going to get me into the gates of heaven? And of course, what the Lord has done, Spurgeon goes on to relate, is he has provided the rose of Sharon himself, the lily of the valleys, the glorious flower which alone will enable anyone to get through those gates. And uh, that, that idea is what Paul is communicating here in Romans 10. I would invite you to open uh, the Bible this morning to Romans chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 13. And in this passage, Paul is continuing to answer the question, what has happened to the Jewish people? How is it that the Jewish people have been cut off from the love of Christ? So just to review briefly where we've been in the book of Romans... We, we've, we've come up through chapter 8, and at the end of chapter 8, Paul celebrates the fact that there is nothing that can separate uh, those who have experienced God's love, those who have experienced God's grace. There's nothing that can separate them from God's love in Christ Jesus. And, and this provokes the question, well, what has separated the Jewish people from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And, and if you've been with us as we've worked through these passages, you know what I'm about to say. Just let me re review it briefly. Uh, Paul starts off explaining uh, that, that he feels a deep evangelistic burden for his Jewish countrymen. 
And so I'll just mention here that some people look at these passages and they say, this can't be talking about election unto salvation because these people don't want to believe in the, the idea that God would choose those who would be saved. And so some people want to say, this is only talking about election unto service or election unto ministry. So the Jews are cut off, but it just means that they no longer serve as God's ministers. And, and I think that if that were the case, Paul would not say in Romans uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 2, that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for them. And then I don't think he would say in verse 3 that he could wish that he himself were cut off from Christ for the sake of his kinsmen according to the flesh. I, this has to be dealing with salvation for him to be talking about things so grave and severe. So, so Paul is, is going to explain in verse 6 that it's not that the word of God has failed. It's not that God's promises have not come true. No, God has chosen that some Israelites will be true Israel within the broader nation of Israel. And so he goes on to explain how God chose Isaac, not Ishmael, and God chose Jacob, not, not Esau. And then this provokes the questions that always come in response to the doctrine of election. In verses 14 through 18, does this make God unfair? Is this unjust on God's part? And, and Paul, again, he, he answers that no, in order for it to be unfair, it would have to be the case that God would owe people mercy. But it's not the case that God owes anyone mercy. God, mercy is something that God freely gives. All people have made themselves guilty by their own transgression. And, and then back up further from that, all people are already guilty because of what Adam has done. So no one deserves God's salvation. No one deserves God, God's mercy. But he freely chooses to give it to some, not all. And then the next question that comes in verse 19 and following is, if this is the case, how can God hold people accountable if he chooses who's going to be saved? And Paul explains in verses 20 and 21 that, that people are in no position to answer back to God, that God has set the world up for there to be vessels of wrath who will experience his justice. And this highlights the amazing and free and glorious character of God's mercy, which he gives to vessels of mercy. And then Paul goes on to talk about how these vessels of mercy, God has drawn them from both Jews and Gentiles. So before he starts talking about why some Jews have been cut off, he starts talking about how the, the Gentiles have come in the same way that the Jews came in, and that is by God's mercy. And that establishes the point that the Jews who are saved, the Israel within Israel, they did not earn their salvation either. They also came in by mercy. Uh, and so having established these things, he gets down to chapter 9, verse 30 and following. And here he starts talking about in Romans 9, 30, how Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And then in the next verse, he speaks of how Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not reach that law because they pursued it as though it were by works. And what he's going to address in the passage that's before us this morning, Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, is, is it's almost as though he's answering the question, how is it that someone comes to be righteous by faith? So it's as though Paul has, over the years, this 
Turkish Jew who has traveled the Mediterranean world, as he now writes to these Italian Christians in Rome, it's as though he's anticipating them asking questions that he's probably encountered many, many times. You're saying that the Gentiles become righteous by faith. You've got to tell me more about how that works. And, and that brings us uh, to where we are here in Romans chapter 10, verse 5, where to set up the righteousness that comes by faith... Paul is first going to address the righteousness that's based on the law. So I would invite you to look with me at Romans chapter 10, verse 5, where Paul says this. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandment, commandments shall live by them. Um, before we get into the into the thick of this, I just want to observe here that, that Paul is quoting Leviticus 18.5, and you note he says, Moses writes, and then he quotes this verse. So, um, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a person, I just want to believe everything the Bible teaches. And if the Bible teaches that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, I want to believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And, and there are lots of theories about who wrote which, who wrote which parts, and I think those theories, I... I I give those theories about the same amount of credence as I give the theories about who wrote Shakespeare, you know, some other person that I uh, know. I think there was this guy named William Shakespeare that wrote all those plays that go by his name, and I think that there was this literary genius named Moses that wrote all these books that are attributed to him. So Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Let me first talk about what I think Leviticus 18.5 meant when Moses gave it to Israel. And then we'll talk about what has happened and, and what Leviticus 18.5 means now that Christ has come in view of Romans chapter 10 verse 4. Okay, So think with, you, think with me, if you will, about the Old Covenant. And perhaps it, it'll be easy for, for you to recall that in the Old Covenant there are all these warnings that that if you, if you don't do it exactly the way Moses prescribes it, you're going to die. And, and the wording of it is, for instance, you know, the high priest, they have to be clothed in a certain way and they have to proceed in such a way when they're going to enter into the holy, of, holy place or the holy of holies. And then the warning comes, lest he die. And then when they deal with, for instance, the Ark of the Covenant and the furnishings of the tabernacles, tabernacle, it's only certain people who can touch those things, and they have to fold everything up a certain way, and they have to carry it all a certain way, and they, they're not to touch the holy things lest they die. And in the context of those kinds of warnings, this is where Moses says, the one who does the prescribed commandments will live by them. You, you, see, you see how this works for the old covenant? There are these warnings, if you don't do it the way I'm telling you, to do it, you're going to die. And we can think of people like Uzzah, who touched the Ark of the Covenant, and he, he was struck dead. Or we can think of uh, the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire before the Lord, and they were struck dead. You have to do it this way, lest you die. But the one who does them shall live by them. Now, think with me, in that context, about how the one who does them shall live by them functions. It's a promise of life, isn't it? It's a promise that if you will believe what Moses is saying about the one who inhabits the Holy of Holies, 
And if you will believe what Moses is telling you about how to avoid death and maintain your life, if you'll believe those things, you will act on that faith and you will live. So I think that, I think that Paul would have acknowledged, yes, that's the way it worked in the Old Covenant. Yes, even Leviticus 18.5 teaches salvation by grace through faith because God is freely and generously given these, these things to Israel, and it is only if Israel believes them thing, these things that they will stay alive. But what's happened now is Christ has come. And look back at verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And now that Christ has come, he's the one to whom the law pointed. He's the, he's the event in salvation history that the law was building toward, and now that he's come, the provisions for sin that were made under the old covenant, they're, they're no longer operative. So you can't offer those sacrifices anymore. You can't go to that temple anymore. God no longer dwells in that temple. That's not the way it works anymore, now that Christ has come. And on this side of Christ, now that Christ has come, if you want to earn your righteousness, you've got to keep the whole law. Perfect flawless obedience. So I'm proposing to you that the meaning of Leviticus 18.5 is altered by the coming of Christ. Under the old covenant, before the coming of Christ, I think Leviticus 18.5 communicates salvation by grace through faith. Now that Christ has come, if you want to take on the, the job of keeping the Mosaic law, you're going to have to do that by works. Because now... The sacrifices have been fulfilled in Christ. He's the end of the law. And, and you can no longer go up to the, to the temple and offer a sacrifice for your cleansing. So you're going to have to attain perfect obedience. And I think that's what Paul is speaking of here in Romans 10.5. As he elaborates on 10.3, look back at 10.3, where he speaks of the Jewish people and he says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And, and then he explains how Christ is the end of the law. And those statements are also elaborating on the ones that we were looking at in 932, where he speaks of how the Jewish people, they did not pursue this righteousness by faith, but as if it were based on works. So it would be like trying to establish righteousness by works, it would, it would be like um, someone deciding that this room is not cool enough, and, and so what they decide to do is uh, build, invent and then build their own personal air conditioner to try to keep themselves cool. That, that, that would be an, an analogy to trying to establish your righteousness by your works, or you could decide that, that what you're going to do to try to transport yourself home uh, is right here from scratch uh, with the materials at hand, on site, you're going to build, invent and build your own personal automobile to try to drive yourself home this afternoon. That, that, that's that's a, a little bit of what it would be like to try to establish your own righteousness. Uh, along these lines, I, I read about a guy some time ago. I read this and then I went and dug up the the article, I read it about this guy who decided that he was going to make for himself a sandwich from scratch. I mean, really from scratch. 
So he grew the vegetables, planted his own garden. He gathered salt from seawater. He milked a cow. He turned the milk into cheese. He pickled a cucumber, which he had grown in his garden. He, you know, he used a jar. He didn't build his own jar, but still, he's, he's going to a lot of effort here. He, uh, he ground his own flour from wheat to make the bread. He collected his own honey, and he personally killed and, and cleaned and skinned a chicken to, for the meat for this sandwich. And then he published the results of, of what all went into this and how long it took him. He spent six months making a sandwich, and it cost him $1,500 to do this. I mean, it, it is amazing what, what is provided for us by the grocery store, you know? And, 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 and then if we take that, and it's like what we have to do is transpose it to, to infinite degrees to begin to think about, now I'm going to establish my own righteousness before God. I mean, we're not just talking about a sandwich or an automobile or an air conditioner. We're talking about absolute, infinite, all-encompassing holiness and righteous behavior and character. Perfect obedience to the law. So what Paul is saying is that his Jewish contemporaries, not only did God not elect them to salvation. That's the divine sovereignty side of it. Also, on the human responsibility side of it, they tried to establish their own righteousness. So there was a part that God played. God did not elect them and call them. And there was a part that they played. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not recognize God's righteousness. And they thought they could make their own sandwich, build their own automobile, create their own air conditioner, and make themselves perfect. And Paul is saying, this is impossible. No, no one can be saved that way. As I was, as I was thinking about these things, um, I, I, you know, if you can't attain perfect right. What is, what, is, what is the failure to attain perfect righteousness? What is that like? And, and as I was trying to, to get my head around what, how God might regard that, what I thought of is how a parent, say me, might respond if one of my kids obeyed according to the flesh, obeyed superficially, externally, they did everything that I said, but they didn't love me, and they didn't trust me. So, you know, imagine me giving instructions to, to one of my sons, and the kid comes back and he says, I mowed the lawn. I respected my mother. I spoke kindly to my sister. What do you want? And you can hear how in those responses, there's no love. There's no trust. There's no kindness. And I think this is the kind of thing that Jesus was getting at in that parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal comes home and the older brother, the older brother's attitude is, I've been here with you this whole time doing everything that you said. And you never did these things for me. No love. No trust. No transformed heart. The father, I would not be pleased with my son talking to me that way. God will not be pleased if we regard him that way. I read my Bible. I went to church. I tried to treat those people the way you want me to treat them. But there's no love flowing. And there's no, 
You know, when things don't go our way, in some, in some cases what's happening is God, it's, it's as though God is testing us. And it's like God is saying, I know you want things to work out a certain way. They're not going to go that way. And what I'm trying to see is whether or not you're going to trust me. What I'm, what I'm putting before you is the question, are you going to believe that I'm good? And that even if you don't get exactly what you want, I'm still going to take care of you. Good speech and good action must flow from a heart of love and trust. Or they will only, these things, good speech and good action, they will only be external and superficial. So here's a question that confronts us as we think about the, the requirements of the law and what pleases God. Do we love God? Do we trust him? And, and it, if we try to stir up in ourselves more of this, I think the, 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 way, to, the way to pursue that is to consider what he's done for us. And I, I, I try to think in, in analogies, and, and as, as I was thinking about this, I thought to myself, why is it that players, athletes, love good coaches? Why is it that athletes love good coaches? And, and often it's because these coaches have given such revolutionary instruction. You know, somebody's trying to do something, whether it's run faster or jump higher or hit a ball farther or throw it straighter or whatever, and some coach comes along and says, well, you've got to place your feet this way, and you've got to cause your, moves to hit, your hips to move this way, and you, you need to follow through like this. And so there's this revolutionary instruction that's enlightening. And all of a sudden, what was so difficult and even impossible before, you're like, oh, I can do this. Now that I know the form and the procedure, and then also, often, these coaches that are beloved, they've made great sacrifices. They've, behind the scenes, without, without the athletes knowing what they're doing, they've made phone calls to schedule games. They've, they've made sure that the field is going to be prepared. They've gone to great lengths to make sure that when these athletes show up and, and are ready to play, everything's going to be in place. The umpires are going to be on site. Everything is ready. And, and even if they don't articulate it or necessarily recognize it, at some level they feel, this guy has really done a lot for me. This guy has really made a lot of sacrifices for me. And, you know, we cannot begin to, to account for all that God has done to make our lives possible. And we cannot begin to account for all the ways that the Bible comes along like a good coach saying, this is the, why, this is the reason you mess it up every time when we get to this point in the play. You need to do it this way. The Bible is so thoroughly instructive and revolutionary for us. Why do good players love good coaches? For the same reason that people who have experienced God's grace love God. And, and, and the, more that, the more we contemplate these things, the more aware of God's goodness to us we become, the more we will feel what we ought to feel in response to him. So in Romans 10.5, Paul is saying, look, this righteousness that's based on the law basically says to you, do it. And then he, then he contrasts that in chapter 10, verses 6 through uh, through 13, really, but, but it starts with 6 through 8. He contrasts this with a righteousness that's based on faith. And here, as he turns to the righteousness that's based on faith in Romans 10, 6, he's developing 
the way that the Gentiles, back in chapter 9, verse 30, they didn't pursue this righteousness, but they attained the righteousness that's by faith. And, and here he tells us how. Romans 10, verse 6. The righteousness based on faith says... And, and what Paul does is he takes language from Deuteronomy 30 that Denny read earlier, and he adapted it. He adapts it here. And he adapts it, and then it's like he provides uh, interpretation. Uh, <clears throat> so what he does, notice, if, if, if you want to put a finger in Deuteronomy 30, we can sort of compare what that passage says with what Paul says here. So Paul here in Romans 10, 6 says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. That's a command. Back in Deuteronomy 30, uh, Moses had said in, in verse 11 and following, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say. So Moses is not giving a command. He's not telling Israel, don't say in your heart. And, and so what's, what, is, what is it that Paul is doing here? I think what Paul is doing is he's picking up on the meaning of what Moses is saying. He's, he's, he's getting at the, the real underlying truth, even as he adapts it for the context of his argument. Because he's, he's attributing, he, he, I mean, Moses wrote Deuteronomy 30, and Moses also wrote Leviticus 18, right? So he's not going to use Moses to argue against Moses. But now that Christ has come, there's this way of righteousness that, mean, that says, do the law. But then there's this other way. And think about what Moses is saying. It's like Moses is saying there in Deuteronomy 30, the law's not up in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. And Moses doesn't say this, but I think he could say, after all, I went up on Mount Sinai. I went up into the clouds. And God gave me the law to bring it to you. So you don't have to do what I did. And then he goes on, Moses does, and he says in verse 13, Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? And, and again, I think Moses could add, After all, God parted the Red Seas and brought us through them to Mount Sinai so that we could receive the law. And then at that point, Moses says, The word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. If you'll believe. If you'll believe that this is the way to life. And, and what Paul is doing in his argument, I think, is saying here in Romans 10, 6, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the, from the dead. Now, Paul has altered the, the statements to the new realities. Now that Christ has come, Christ the end of the law. But he's also saying something like this. You don't have to be Moses. And you don't have to accomplish the salvation. In the same way that God gave the law to Moses and delivered the people from Egypt through the, through the events of the Exodus, bringing them through the Red Sea, God has sent Christ to us. God caused the incarnation to happen. And God raised Jesus from the dead. God has accomplished salvation. You don't have to do something heroic. You don't have to figure out a way to scale the skies or to plunder the dead. You don't have to do these things. God has already done all this for you in Christ. To go back to that, that parable, it would be like saying, look, God 
created this perfect soil, and he came up with that ideal seed, and he watered it with the perfect amount, and he caused it to bloom with the, the right temperatures and the right amount of sunlight so that this glorious flower is here provided for you. You don't have to be the inventor, the creator, the savior. God has already sent him in the Lord Jesus. So verse 6, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. You don't have to go get some savior from somewhere. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the... You don't have to accomplish the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Verse, verse 8, what does it say? And here Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is, he explains, the word of faith that we proclaim. You're hearing the gospel, he's saying. You've, in the same way that Moses said, look, you don't have to go up on Sinai. You don't have to cross the Red Sea. God's done these things for us. And here's the word for you to believe and obey. Paul is now saying, here's the gospel for you to believe and obey. And then he explains further in verses 9 and 10 exactly how this works. So someone, someone receives the good news, and how is it that you go from the reception of the good news to being righteous by faith? Look at verse 9. Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm just going to keep reading in verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice how he goes, um, confess, believe, believe, confess. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, all, all of that, every, every aspect of that assumes that someone is believing the Bible's account of the world. It assumes and, and takes for granted that this is only going to work for people who believe that God is the creator, that he's holy, that God made the world good, and then that people sinned and transgressed against God and brought them under his condemnation so that God sending the perfect redeemer to die and rise from the dead, to live the perfect life and then accomplish salvation, this is actually, and then set in motion the renewal of all things, this is actually the true story of the world because that confession and that belief only results in salvation on those terms. And this confessing and believing, therefore, denies alternative worldviews and rejects conflicting explanations of the world and those conflicting explanations of the world's problems with their other gods and their other definitions of sin, and their other plans of salvation. So part of what it means to, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead is to commit yourself to taking every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. It's committing yourself to the program of saying, I am now going to evaluate every proposal for what's wrong in the world in light of these things. And this is so important for us because so many of these, these proposals about what's wrong in the world, they're just shallow. They don't go deep enough. They don't explain fully enough what's wrong. Just as an example, I'm going to 
refer to what Dr. Moeller said, I believe it was on Tuesday, it might have been Wednesday, this past week, in the briefing, what he had to say about Marxism. And, and he noted, I don't know if you've ever read um, um, uh, the Communist Manifesto, but if you go read this thing, it will be apparent to you that what Dr. Moeller is saying here is absolutely true. He says, Marxism emerged as a direct response, a refutation of the biblical worldview. So the doctrine of creation was replaced with materialism. And original sin was replaced, the problem of sin, was replaced with a Marxist analysis of economic oppression. And, you know, that just fails to account for the way that things are. Because you can remove economic oppression and people still have the problem of sin that they're dealing with. And, and then the, the redemption, the doctrine of redemption, was replaced with this promise of political revolution. And then the, 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 the Christian future, the kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth, all that was replaced with a Marxist utopia where the state owns everything, which, by the way, they have to do a lot of killing and seizing and uh, a lot of evil, wicked things to bring that about. And then they never actually do bring it about. And and everywhere you look where this is tried, what you have is wicked people exercising power in heinous ways because they haven't addressed the problem of sin. So they haven't really gotten to the root of the issue. And, and Dr. Moeller went into this because he wanted to address uh, critical race theory. And, and I think that the same things that, I've, that have, I've said here about Marxism can be said about crit critical race theory, namely... Um, more, more is going on here with, with these problems than, than white supremacy. That doesn't go deep enough. Racism and, and the sin that, that has been enacted, it goes far deeper than merely uh, uh, physical accounts of oppression. The, the, the physical diagnosis of oppression is not deep enough. It doesn't go far enough. And then an, a, 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 a sort of analogy to the communist revolution in critical race theory, this revolutionary approach that's going to transform society and really at the end of the day just give the power to some other group that really doesn't go far enough to solve the problem. What we need, what we need is what only Christianity provides, which is this transformation of the heart this real diagnosis of the issue, and then this tra transformation of the heart. And that's what Paul is addressing here when he's talking about confessing that Christ is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. It's entailing this whole Christian worldview. So we need to think hard about how our worldviews affect our feelings about things, the conclusions that we come to about what's going on in society, our dispositions toward what's happening in society, our whole approach to life. We need to apply the gospel to every area of life. And what we're trying to do is bring our feelings, our conclusions, our dispositions, and our approaches into line with a biblical worldview. We're trying to take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. Paul didn't think that the biggest problem he had was the Roman oppression of the Jewish people. Paul thought that the biggest problem he had was his guilt before a holy God. And if God is the most important thing in the universe, our standing before him will be the biggest issue in our lives. So the problem is that God is holy and we're sinful. 
The solution is that God has sent Christ. And then this is, this is leading to the, the end of history that the Bible describes for us. That's, that's the worldview that's entail, entailed by Romans 10, 9, and 10. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Look at verse 11. Paul applies this to everyone. Romans 10, 11. For the scripture says, everyone who, who believes in him will not be put to shame. So this everyone includes poor people and prostitutes, unclean Gentiles, oppressors and oppressed. You know, in these other accounts of things, the oppressors, they really can't be saved. Salvation means crushing the oppressor, but they can't be delivered. But this salvation, the Bible's salvation, can save everybody. It saves Russians, it saves Jews, it saves Marxists and postmodernists, blacks and whites, everyone can be saved. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And what Paul is returning to is the distinction between Jew and Greek, as he says in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord and here he's just referred to Jesus being confessed as Lord in verse 9. The same Lord is Lord of all. And I think he's talking about Jesus there. So then he goes on to say, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Uh, you, you've probably heard from me recently that story about Alexander the Great. I love this story. I heard Tim Keller tell this story about Alexander the Great. Uh, one of his generals comes to him and, and he asks Alexander the Great to pay for his daughter's wedding. And Alexander sort of pauses and he says, okay, I'll pay for the wedding. And then the general starts making the requests. And the requests are just extravagant and lavish. And, and people are appalled at how bold and presumptuous this general seems to, to, to be uh, proceeding in, the, in these requests. And Alexander the Great is not phased at all. He says, some, someone says to him, uh, are you not offended at how, how demanding this man is being? And he says, no, because the demands show that he not only thinks I'm generous, he thinks I'm exorbitantly wealthy. So the demands show the power and the might and the glory and the wealth. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. When we call on Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as the one who will make all things new and right, we honor him. We glorify him. We say to him, you're the one who can address this. You're the one who can save me. You're the one I need. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 13. Paul is here quoting Joel at the end of, uh, end of Joel chapter 2, uh, chapter 3 in English. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and in, in uh, the Hebrew text, it's everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh. But in the flow of thought here in Romans 10, it's clear that the Lord in view is Jesus. So I think this backs us up to 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this entails you're confessing Jesus is, is God. He's, he's the incarnation of Yahweh. He is the word of the Father who was in the beginning with God and who was God. You're, you're, it entails a, a, an embrace of this Christian understanding of God, the Trinity. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is glorious. You, you, you remember when we were in Psalm 145, there's this beautiful statement in Psalm 145 verse 18. 
He says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we hope for you. We hope that you'll experience the nearness and the goodness of God because you will call on the one in whom you believe. What you think will save you, you will look to it for salvation. And if you believe, you will call on him. And if you're here this morning and you're, you're a Christian and you've long believed in Jesus, you can join me in, in seeking the Lord, asking the Lord to save these people who need Jesus. We, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to experience what we've experienced, this, this great salvation, and, and we plead with you to turn to Christ, to call on the name of the Lord that you may be saved. You will not be excluded. If you will call on him, he will save you. And if you're here and you're a believer, just wrap your arms around Psalm 145, 18. And whatever is going on in your life, whatever it is you're hoping for, whatever it is that's troubling you, this morning, uh, we, Jake, and, Jake and Jed and I drove up here. We dropped Jed off for music practice. Jake and I went over to Sunargas and sat, and I started thinking with him about, about him going off to college in a few years. And, um, you know, I... I want my kids to walk with the Lord for the duration of their lives. And I've, I've watched colleagues who've had kids go off to college and abandon the faith. And the, the only thing I can do in response to this is call on the Lord. The Lord is near to those who call on him. I can't control his destiny. I can't control his future. I can't, I can't make it so that he's going to persevere in the faith. But I can call on the Lord and I can entrust myself to him. And that's really, that's my best hope. That's our one hope, is that the Lord is good and he's near to all who call on him. Maybe you're familiar with the name of David Pallison, and perhaps you saw that he died recently. I read, his, I read Justin Taylor's account of how he came to know the Lord, and it was, it was um, interesting to me that in, in Justin's account of how... Um, David Pallison came to know Jesus, he, he said, um, he said that previously, when he was rejecting the gospel, he, he said, quote, I had believed that despair, not joy, got last say. And then he went on to say, as someone who wanted to run my own life, quote, I had not believed the love of God in Jesus Christ, but relentlessly rejected him. And then he went on, I realized my wrong on both counts. When I responded to this person who was sharing the gospel with him, he said, I asked, how do I become a Christian? And, and he says that he was invited to ask God for mercy. So he says, I beseeched God for mercy. God was merciful. Promises from eons ago proved true. God willingly saves, forgives sins, creates a new life, gives his own spirit, promises great help to obey. He did all this. He found me and led me home. I was surprised by joy and by the love of Jesus. David didn't ask Jesus into his heart. Rather, he cried out to be rescued. He called on the name of the Lord and he was saved. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. David Pallison wrote, it was as though my entire life 
had been walking hot, dusty roads, looking for something which wasn't God, but he was looking for me. And then finding myself at home and finding that I had been found and loved. I'm a Christian. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we thank you that what we could not do for ourselves, we couldn't even find our way to Mount Sinai. We certainly couldn't cross the Red Sea. We couldn't come up into heaven and compel you to send us a Redeemer any more than we could raise him from the dead. But Lord, all these things you have done for us in Jesus. And Lord, we are astonished that when we trust you, in the words that were read earlier in this service, you cause his own righteousness to be ours. You made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, we praise you for this righteousness that is by faith. And I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would experience it. I pray it would become true for them because they feel so compelled to call on your name, to experience your goodness. Lord, we thank you for the true story of the world that you've revealed to us in the scriptures. We pray that you'd make us diligent to bring our whole lives, our attitudes, our emotions, our affections, our dispositions, our habits. Help us, Lord, to bring everything into line with the truth of the scriptures. And we will cry with the redeemed of all the ages, salvation belongs to you. For by your blood you purchased men from every nation under heaven. Yours is the glory and the kingdom and the power forever. Amen.